0: So our text this morning is the verse 7 of Ephesians 1, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. I wonder if I were to ask you this morning what your greatest need is, what you might answer. If you're sick, you might say, well, my greatest need is to be healed of this illness. If you're unemployed, you might say, Well, my greatest need is to find a job to provide for my needs. If you're single, you might say, My greatest need is to find a husband or a wife. People have all kinds of needs. The drug addict might say, Well, my greatest need is to be freed from this addiction. These are all important needs. But none of them are your greatest need The greatest need of every person Man, woman and child Whether they recognize it or not Is to have God forgive them their sins Before they die And they stand before an almighty and holy God In judgment To receive eternal punishment It's nice to have health It's nice to have adequate finances And a happy family These are wonderful blessings, but if you die without God's forgiveness, then all of those blessings will be meaningless. Our greatest need is to know that God has forgiven our sins and that we are reconciled to the great judge of all the universe. And so, this subject of knowing and experiencing. The forgiveness of God is so important that the devil, the great enemy of our souls, has worked over time to sow his seeds of confusion and error. We live in a society today that, rather than dealing with the problem of guilt, tells us that we don't need to worry about sin any longer. The world will look at guilt and say, well, since it doesn't make me feel good about myself, and that's my ultimate goal, whenever my conscience condemns me, I just tell it go take a hike. I'm not interested in feelings of guilt or remorse. And so rather than being ashamed about our sins, we celebrate them. Under the guise of, well, I'm just... Be my true self. Another ploy that the wicked one does in order to fool people today is to get us to invent a God who is not perfectly holy. And that allows us to see ourselves as basically good people. Because you see this God is tolerant and loving and wouldn't possibly condemn nice people like us To an eternal condemnation. And I will readily admit that we're not perfect, but compared to terrorists who blow up innocent people or perverts who abuse little children, I'm not so bad. And so I can excuse my relatively minor faults because they're not as great as other people's major sins. Therefore, I can dismiss this idea of needing to be forgiven. It was Martin Luther that said, do not judge your holiness by other people's sins. Just because there are others that are worse does not mean that you don't need forgiven for the sins that you have committed. Now, Satan is also at work showing confusion about God's forgiveness under the guise of religion. I would say that all of the world's non-Christian religions and even some branches that claim to be Christian will claim to teach that in order to be forgiven there are things you must do. You must fast, you must pray, you must do penance, you must self-deny, you must do good works in order to help pay for your sins and to earn God's favor. Often religious people will base their hope of forgiveness on the fact that they have faithfully performed certain religious rituals. They go to church. They attend Mass. They pray the Rosary. They observe Lent. And they've done this for many years in the attempt to build up credit with God. When really what people need to hear is of their guilt and the the and their sins, and how they can be forgiven solely through the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, uh, we have seen already that the apostle Paul begins this letter to the ephesians. Uh, Speaking of the spiritual blessings that we are blessed with in heavenly places in Christ. And then he pauses to speak of what those blessings actually are. And from verse 3 right down to verse 14 we have a single sentence in the original language. In which Paul praises God for the blessings that he has freely bestowed upon us. Verses 3 to 6 he praises the work of God the Father. These are works that were completed before the world was made. Works from everlasting whereby he has elected us and then predestinated us unto the adoption of children. And he makes us accepted in the beloved. And beginning in verse 7 we see the works of the Son being portrayed for us. And the Verse 13 and 14, the work of the Holy Spirit. So when we come to verse 7 this morning, we're beginning to look at the works of the Lord Jesus Christ in order to purchase our salvation. Paul says that in him, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Now before we go any further I really cannot overemphasize the importance of these truths to your life. If you seek to find forgiveness from God in any other way than which is stated here, you're not only wasting your time, but you are endangering your soul. If your hope of heaven rests upon something that you must do or contribute Or earned, then on that great day when all stand before the throne of God, you will hear those awful words I never knew you depart from me. So these are vitally important truths. If we are to have forgiveness of sins, it must be on the basis of what God has said here. So let's look a little bit closer into this verse 7 and look at this great theme of redemption through his blood. And I want you to notice firstly the purchaser of our redemption. Where is this redemption to be found? Well, it says at the beginning of verse 7, in whom? Well, The first question I have is, in who then? Who is this in whom referencing? Well, it's referencing the verse previous, verse 6, where Paul speaks of how we are made accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood. So the in whom refers to the beloved. The beloved, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're told here that this redemption is found in and through the Lord Jesus Christ God's beloved son in whom he is well pleased. His perfect life, his substitutionary death has provided redemption for all who call upon him. Make no mistake about it. All of God's blessings to us, his people, come to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single one of them. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20. For all the promises of God in him are yea and in him amen unto the glory of God by us. Every blessing that God pours out upon his people comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how Charles Spurgeon put it. He said we have nothing apart from Christ. Our wealth of mercy is all in him. Whatever spiritual blessing you need. God gives it in Christ. If you lack redemption. Or forgiveness of your sins. You will not find it anywhere else. Except in the person and work. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Savior. Proclaimed in John chapter 7. If any man thirst. Let him come unto me and drink. And he that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. All that you need is found in Jesus Christ. The redemption that's provided here means that the Savior has paid the price to free us from the penalty and the power of sin. Now, we often use the term redemption, or redeemed, or we speak of our redeemer. And we use these words as religious terms. But when Paul wrote these words to the Ephesians, the men of the first century of Ephesus, when they heard such terms as redemption and redeemer, were not thinking in terms of religion, It brought to their mind the picture of the slave being purchased and set free. To them redemption mean releasing from bondage by the payment of a price. And every Gentile in the Roman world would have thought of this when he heard the word redemption. Because this word redemption presupposes a very Grave situation for us. It presupposes captivity and bondage and slavery. Were we not a fallen, captive, enslaved race? If you look at verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 2, you find that God's people, those whom He saves, We're by nature the children of wrath. Even as others. We were born in captivity to sin. We were in bondage to Satan. We were under the curse of the law. Redemption implies a a serious and a grave situation. We needed something to be redeemed from. It also implies a prior ownership. It's not so common today, but there was a time that supposing you were lacking the finances needed for your day-to-day life or an emergency arose, you could take something of value and you could bring it to a pawn shop and you could leave it with them and they would give you money for it and a, a token, a receipt, and a certain amount of time to come back and to pay the value that would be necessary to redeem that item out of hawk. That doesn't happen so often today, but there are still some places that do it. Well, redemption speaks of something being redeemed that was previously owned. We belong to God from everlasting. But we were lost to him because of our sin. We have gone astray from our mother's womb. And so the Lord Jesus came into this world. In order to redeem us. To pay back the purchase price. To rescue us from captivity and slavery. And to restore us back to our original owner. So redemption is the complete deliverance. Of our souls from sin. And from its consequences, and to bring us into the glorious liberty of the sons of God by the purchase of Jesus Christ and by the purpose of God. Redemption can be defined as the action of regaining possession of something in exchange for a payment or the clearing of a debt. This theme of redemption is all through our Bibles. It's promised and prophesied and portrayed throughout the pages of Scripture. You get into the Old Testament, you read of such things as a kinsman-redeemer. You read through the book of Ruth, you'll see that portrayed for us. Kinsman-redeemer. You'll remember that Naomi and her family had left Uh, their inheritance and went to the land of Moab. There her husband and her sons died and she was left penniless, destitute with nothing. She returned to her homeland and finds that the property that belonged to them due to their debt has fallen into the hands of another. And she's lost her husband and she has no way to recover her possession. Ah, but there's a kinsman redeemer. A, a close relative that's able to pay the price on their behalf. And along comes Boaz. He takes a shine to Ruth, Naomi's daughter-in-law. And with the purchase of the fields, he purchases a bride also. He pays the property price and he redeems them. And he takes possession of them. We read from it. Exodus 12, where the children of Israel were redeemed with the purchase price of the blood of the Lamb. They took the Lamb into their homes, and then they slew it and put the blood upon the doorposts of their house. And as the death angel passed by, those under the blood were saved, while everyone else in, in Egypt suffered the loss of the firstborn. Picture of redemption through the blood of the Lamb. Go a little bit further in the Old Testament, you'll find that every firstborn son had to be redeemed. There were certain firstborn animals that had to be redeemed also. In the case of sons, it meant paying a price. In the case of some of the animals, it meant offering them upon the altar. The idea, of course, was that The payment of a price in order to release them from bondage and captivity. Everything in the Old Testament points to the subject of redemption. Everything in the New Testament explains it. It's why the Savior came. It's why he suffered and died and rose again for our redemption. So Paul takes this term redemption known to the people of Ephesus in terms of slavery and bondage and setting them free. And he places it in a spiritual context and tells us how the Lord Jesus Christ has paid the price for our sin by his sacrificial death, and he has set us free. We who are helplessly and hopelessly enslaved to our sin and under God's judgment, have been released by the payment of the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we now belong to him. We've been bought with a price. We are no longer our own. We are his now. We see the purchaser of this redemption. Now what else do we see in this passage? We see the objects of redemption. Who is it that has been redeemed? Well, verse 7 says, In whom, that's Christ, the purchaser, we. We are the objects of redemption. We have been redeemed. Paul says, In whom we have redemption through his blood. So who are the we? Well, we're not left to guess who have been redeemed. Just read chapter 1 and it tells you exactly who are the redeemed of God. Who are those that have redemption through his blood? It's all those who have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in verse 3. They are those who have been chosen of God in verse 4. They are those who have been predestined unto adoption in verse 5. They are the same ones who are accepted in the beloved in verse 6. They are the ones who have been forgiven in verse 7. These are the ones that have obtained the inheritance of grace in verse 11, who have been given faith in Christ in verse 13, and are sealed by the Spirit of God in verse 14. We, we have been redeemed. And notice something thirdly the fact of our redemption. In whom we have the redemption through his blood. We have it. Paul is saying this is something that we can know and enjoy right now. He's not saying in him someday we hope to be redeemed. Nor does he say that we are working at obtaining our redemption but we don't know yet if we'll get it until we see whether our good works outnumber our bad works. That's not what he says. He says that in him we have now presently, perfectly, the redemption of God. It is our current possession. It's our current experience. Now there is a sense in which we await the future redemption of our bodies. And the finalization of our redemption will not not occur until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. But even so, right now we can say, we have redemption in Christ. And knowing that should fill our hearts with joy and gratitude for the Savior. There should be an overwhelming sense of rejoicing when we think of our redemption. It removes from us any sense of fear, of judgment. It gives us hope beyond the grave. It motivates us to be holy because of our love for Christ. If we have trusted in him for the payment of our sins, God wants us to know and to enjoy the fact that we have been redeemed. We have been redeemed. Tell me, is that your current position? Is that the joy of your heart right now to be able to say, I have been redeemed. I have the promise of God that it's well with my soul. Notice fourthly, the price of our redemption is through his blood in whom we have redemption through his blood. The Lord Jesus shed his blood to redeem us. You know, there are many people that are offended by this teaching. And some that refer to it as slaughterhouse religion. Speaks about blood and death. And who wants to think about those things? The fact that Jesus had to shed his blood to secure our redemption. But let me tell you, you can't get away from it in the scriptures. It continually speaks of the necessity of the blood of Christ in order for us to be redeemed. Well, why does the New Testament insist upon the necessity of our Savior's shed blood? Well, because, as Romans 6 makes it very clear, in verse 23, the wages of sin is death. God has declared that the wages of sin is death. But then, if he were to simply remove the penalty, he would compromise his justice. He would be like a judge who had a murderer standing before him and yet turned to him and said, I forgive you, try not to do it again. We would be outraged. We would be calling for a miscarriage of justice. Justice demands the appropriate payment for the crimes committed. God told Adam and Eve right at the very beginning, in the day that ye eat of this forbidden fruit, ye shall die. The wages of sin is death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, no forgiveness of our sins. And so we're right back to the Old Testament again, in Leviticus 17 and verse 11, where the Lord explains that the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So Paul's bringing us right back to the Old Testament sacrificial system that the Lord Jesus has fulfilled when he offered himself as the lamb Of sacrifice upon the cross, all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament—they all pointed forward to our Saviour. Every lamb that was slain, every ram, every turtle dove, every goat, every animal sacrificed, whose blood was shed and sprinkled upon the mercy seat, all pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who by his death would bring about peace with God and forgiveness of sins. So the issue is either you trust what the Lord Jesus has done upon the cross as the full payment for your sins or else you stand before God at the judgment and pay for those sins yourself. But since you've offended an eternally holy God, and you've sinned against one who is infinitely holy, then each sin demands an infinitely holy punishment. That's why purgatory makes no sense, For somehow in the passing of time you can atone for your sins and find peace with God. He's infinitely holy. His wrath is infinite against your sin. You cannot pay it back in time. Therefore there is no second chance. It's appointed unto man once to die. And after that the judgment. That's why you need this redemption. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's a, a sacrifice of infinite value. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that's been shed. It's God the Son who has shed that precious blood. The price of our redemption is the blood of Jesus Christ shed for sinners. What's the result of our redemption? Redemption through the blood of Christ means that we have been forgiven of our sins. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now redemption provides so much more for us Than just the forgiveness of sins, but that's certainly the starting point. That's our experience when we're first redeemed. And where there is no redemption through His blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You cannot have one without the other. Someone said that forgiveness means loosing or letting someone go from the things that bind them. Well, we have been forgiven of our sins. And the, the nuance of the word there in verse 7, that word sins, it doesn't mean sin in a general sense. It's, it's referring to those individual acts of sin that we have committed. And Paul wants us to know that our specific, our shameful, our embarrassing sins that rise up at times in our memories to condemn us, They can all be forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we can say that God has forgiven all of my past sins. And he forgives all of my present sins. And he forgives all of my future sins. He's removed them all from me. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. He has cast them into the depths of the sea. He has blotted them out. He will not impute them to us. He's purged them away. He will not remember them against us forever. He will never deal with us any less graciously because of our sins. So significant is this redemption that the scriptures tell us that the blood of Jesus Christ God's Son cleanses us from all sins. You can see why I say it's crucial that we understand this and experience this on a daily basis. What liberating truth it is to know that God forgives all our sins through the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. I have one last point to make. The cause of our redemption. In whom we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. According to the riches of his grace. Right at the very heart of this doctrine of redemption. Is this idea that God has done something for us. That we couldn't do for ourselves. It's according to the riches of his grace. We were slaves to sin. We had no power or means to free ourselves. The Lord did not come along and help us. To pay the price of our own redemption. In fact it's an insult to think that we can add anything to what Jesus Christ has done and the price that he has paid. If someone were to come along and to offer you a gift that was worth thousands of dollars, and you were to reach into your pocket and pull out a five-cent coin and say, I'll pay for it, you would insult them. You would insult. The Lord Jesus graciously paid it all. We must simply receive the gift. And then live each day in the light of what he has so graciously and generously did for us. It's according to the riches of his grace. Our redemption. God planned it. God provided it. God performed it. God applies it. God completes it. And God will have all the praise for it. Because it's all of God's grace. It's all of grace. He has paid the price. Is it any wonder the prophet Isaiah calls us to seek the Lord. While he may be found and call upon him. While he is near. You notice that this grace. This forgiveness is according to the riches of his grace. Paul doesn't say that it's out of the riches of his grace but according to the riches of his grace. If you go to a multimillionaire and you ask him for a contribution to some worthy cause that you're collecting for this millionaire gives you ten dollars he is giving you something out of his riches. But if he writes you a check for a $100,000 that he's given you according to his riches. Well, God has given to us according to his riches. And if you look at verse 8, you see wherein he hath abounded toward us. And the idea is that he has lavished upon us his grace. He has given us much more than we could ever expected or imagined. His grace is extravagant. we're thinking, Pastor, you've gone too far. If you preach like this, people are going to go out and sin, thinking, well, I'm going to be forgiven, and I can live any way I please. Well, if you've thought like that, I'm glad. Because when Paul taught the same truth in the book of Romans, he anticipated that response. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin Live any longer there. And you know, when you know the beloved Redeemer and you know that He shed His precious blood to secure your forgiveness, it doesn't make you want to go and sin against Him more. It binds your heart to Him in love. It makes you hate the sin that brought Him to the cross. It makes you want to strive against the sins that crucified Him. Not to indulge in, In whom we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Wherein he hath abounded toward us. Do you believe it? Do you believe this great truth? Let me share with you a story just in closing. It's a true story. It's a story of... A church service one evening in which the Lord opened the heart of a young woman to respond to the message of the gospel. And to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as her Savior. And she came from a very rough past. There was alcohol, there was drugs, there was promiscuity. There was even talk of prostitution. But the evidence of her redemption was clear in all who seen her. Her life was transformed. It was turned around. She became a faithful member of the congregation. Eventually she started teaching children in the Sunday school. It wasn't long after that that she caught the eye and the heart of the pastor's son. And a relationship grew between the two. And they started to the talk of wedding plans. And that's when the problems began in the church. There were some in the church that didn't think that a woman with such a past was suitable as a a, a wife for a pastor's son. They began to talk and argue and debate and gossip about the matter. And eventually it came to a head and they had a meeting in the church about the subject. And you can imagine that the emotions were heated and the tensions were increased and the meeting was getting somewhat out of hand. And the young woman who was quiet throughout the whole meeting because of the matters of her past that had been brought up began to cry softly. The pastor's son who had longed to marry her stood up to speak and he said, my fiancé's past is not what's on trial here. He says, what you're really questioning is the ability Of the blood of Jesus Christ to wash away sin? You've put on trial the blood of Jesus Christ. Does it wash away our sin or does it not? The whole church began to weep as they realized that they had been slandering the blood of Jesus Christ. They sometimes sing the old hymn, What Can Wash Away My Sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Well, do you believe that or not? Does the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse us from all sin? Do we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin? Because if the blood of Jesus Christ does not wash away all our sins, then we are in trouble. Because we have many sins to deal with. If the blood of Jesus Christ only washes away our minor sins, then what good is it? No, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us. I praise God that this message is true. There is forgiveness to be found in Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all of our sins. May ye you know it and embrace it and rejoice within it. And may you sing of your Redeemer and of his wondrous power to save. Amen.